Amen. Amen. Well, grab your Bibles and you can open up to the book of Romans. Grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Romans, chapter 10. The sermon this morning is called All Who Call. All Who Call. And this comes from one of the most uh, famous passages in the book of Romans. Um, along the uh, Romans Road is one of the most famous ways to share your faith with people. Um, and so we learn today that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so all who call is the title of the sermon. Now, in preparation for this message, I wanted to remind everybody that where did we get this Bible from? Where did we get these books from? The book of Romans was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Rome. So we can't visit ancient Rome without a time machine. I can't afford the time machines listed on Amazon. So what I can do is I can, uh, I found a video of somebody who like put together a computer generated reenactment of what ancient Rome was like. And so I found that and I want to show just a short clip of what ancient Rome was like. And imagine you're a Christian in this great city of this great empire and you get this letter from the Apostle Paul. That's where this book came from. So check out this video. Uh, and along with the um, tour of Rome, there's also this like really super soothing music that'll just relax you as you're about to hear a message from the Bible. As I was watching this, I was like, wow, I could just kind of, I just kind of listen to this all day long. It's very soothing. But check out ancient Rome. Imagine you've just got a, a job. You get up, you go to work, you do what you need to do. And, and then you, one day you go to church and you're just this small band of, of new believers in this huge, massive, impressive empire. And somebody gets up and says, hey, we got a letter. And then they read what is the book of Romans. And boy, it's taken us how many weeks to study it so far. But So then they keep coming back week after week and they're talking about everything that's in it. And the Christians are just this very small minority uh, caught up in the in the years of time, not knowing that they were holding one of the most precious books that would be in the New Testament, filled with some of the greatest theology that, uh, that God's Word holds. But this is how we got our Bible. It was just written to average, ordinary, normal people just going about their day. I love, here it brings you down to street level. Isn't this music soothing? I feel so relaxed. All right, and we'll, we'll turn it off right there. So here we are now, you know, a couple thousand years later, and this book still is so pivotal to our world today. The world has changed, but God's word has not. And so what we'll see today is what was true then, that all in Rome, all in Jerusalem, all today, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray, and then we'll read about the Lord in the book of Romans. Thank you, Father, for this amazing declaration that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Show us, O oh Lord, how this truth applies today, the same truth. Show us, Lord, though the world has changed, how this applies to us because we want to know you and we want to be in a great relationship with you. So we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're in Romans chapter 10. All of the sermons are available online or on our app. We have a podcast, so make sure that you catch up because there's so much we've already covered. But uh, the Apostle Paul in this section is asking the question, 
What happened with Israel? If God had a plan to bring salvation to the ends of the earth through Israel, and then Israel rejected the Messiah, what happened? Did God's plan fail? Did God's word fail? And kind of the underlying this whole section of the Bible, the Apostle Paul is responding to critics, Jewish critics, who would say, Moses is the best. You're rejecting the Old Testament. You're changing God. You're changing God's plan. And Paul's like, no, he's using the Old Testament to show, hey, this is the plan, this is the same God, and it's moving forward faithfully. So here we are in Romans chapter 10, and here's what the Apostle Paul says. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, the first thing we observe here is Paul's heart. He says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Uh, the first thing you can write down is this. Pray that the lost would be saved. Pray that the lost would be saved. As we build up to this climactic declaration that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, we have a man here with a broken heart for the lost. He's praying for the lost. We learned last week that he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for his brothers who were not saved yet. My challenge when I said that was, man, I don't know about you, but my fire for the lost goes out. My passion to reach people for Christ goes out. Uh, one of our pillars here at, at Harvest is evangelism, and that pillar often falls right over. And, and when's the last time we reached out with the gospel and, and shared with people the opportunity to be saved? So how do we relight that fire? Through prayer. And I challenged us a few weeks ago, and I'll challenge us again. If, if it's been a long time since you got on your knees before the Lord with a list of people in your life who don't know Jesus and prayed with great sorrow and unceasing anguish that they would be saved, I want to challenge you to do that this week. I want to challenge you to pray with sorrow, with anguish, and it forms the heart. I know, maybe you've already tried with many of your relatives or friends. Maybe you feel like it's a lost cause, and maybe even kneeling down will create so much emotion because you're like, Lord, it's never going to happen. I know, I know that feeling. I'm there. But we can't give up prayer for the lost. Pray that the lost would be saved. Paul models this. He shows us how we should feel, and this is also the, the heart of God. We can't assume that those around us in life, living without faith in Christ, will be okay. We, we can't assume that. We actually have to assume uh, that where they're at is, is, the, is that they need the Lord Jesus. And so we, it starts when we pray for them to be saved. Now, he says here, uh, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Then he says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Now, here's what makes it even harder. You know this with your friends and relatives who don't know Jesus. They think they're great with God, right? They, they think that they've never been better with God. And you're like, no, that's not what the Bible says. And you, one of the hurdles, the obstacles is you're like, you need to get right with God. And they're like, already done. No, you don't understand. You need Jesus. No, I'm good with God. And, and that frustration is what Paul is modeling here, too. He says, I, I want these people to get right with God, but they think they're already good with him. So you could jot this down. He's saying this. Their religious zeal is misguided. You can fill that in. Their religious zeal is misguided. When you see people in your life 
who seem to be zealous about religion or God. But that, zealous, that zeal is not based on a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't just be like, well, they'll be okay probably. You know, I mean, they're religious. Yeah, they talk about God. They're into spiritual things. You can't be like, so they're good. That wasn't good enough for Paul. He's like, they're zealous, but it's not correct zeal. So religious zeal is often misguided. People get zealous about a lot of things, right? People get zealous about politics. People get zealous about their favorite Netflix show that they're binging on. Some people get zealous about food. And um, I am one of those people right now. Maybe you didn't know this, but recently I went on a diet. And I've lost five pounds, which is why you might be having trouble seeing me this morning. <laughs> if you're like, where is he? I'm right here, all right? So, uh, you know, the winter, the winter weight piles up, and you're like, all right, I got some pounds to lose before, before bathing suit season, right? So I'm like, all right, I'm going to do something here. And I've counted calories before, but, but I haven't really any, ever done a sort of a food restriction diet. So I'm like, you know what? Counting calories is just exhausting. I'm going to try something else. So I gave up, like, all the bad carbs, which is kind of all the fun food, right? So the first day I, I did this, my body went in all-out tantrum mode. I mean, it's just like, I ate a lot of food that day, and by the end of the day, my body's like, none of it counts. We're going to act like you ate nothing today. We're going to starve you. And I'm like, body, this is not fair. And it's like, I don't care. I want my pizza. I want my carbs. And, but anyway, I got through it. So, so I'm going on several days now, and I lost five pounds, which is pretty amazing. And I read a book about this as well. So now I'm pretty excited about this whole, like, I'm learning more and more about, like, how my body works. And I promise you, I'm only going to be obnoxious about it for a few months. And then I'm going to not talk about it anymore. But you know what it's like, right? When people are zealous about something, you know what that's like, right? When they just kind of won't stop talking about something. Well, Paul knows that his, the people he knows back home in Israel are all the Jewish fanatics. They, they love the Old Testament. They do all the festivals, right? They'll teach you the story of Jonah with great passion. He's like, these are religious people. They're really worked up about it. And he's like, but they're misguided. Now, we have to understand what this means. Paul was a Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament better than you know the Old Testament. He taught in synagogues. He ruled along with other rulers. When the chief priests picked somebody and put them in charge of destroying this new cult known as Christians, they picked Paul. He was high up there. He was a star student under Gamaliel. He went house to house persecuting the Christian church. You think he was zealous for God? You bet he was. But he knows now that his zeal was misguided. He truly thought he was doing what God wanted him to do. Now listen, this is a really huge thing. Because when you look at people who are zealous for the wrong thing, you can't just be like, oh, they know exactly what they're doing. No. Part of sin is the blindness that's associated with it. People, you know, it says in the New Testament, Jesus said, people, the, the day will come when people put you to death and they think that God told them to do it. They will really believe that. So religious zeal can be thoroughly misguided. And Paul's a living example of that. So this points to zealous Jewish believers, but this also alerts us that people who are zealous for religion that doesn't line up with the Christian faith um, are misguided in their zeal. 
So this today could include, you know, a Hindu monk who is living in isolation, an extreme life of deprivation, because he thinks that that is the way that he can get to a spiritual place of balance. There is zeal there, zeal beyond our commitment to anything, but it is misguided. This could include somebody who follows a radical uh, practice of Islam, who says that violence is the way to expand uh, his worldview, and there is zeal there, laying down my life zeal, and it is thoroughly spiritually misguided. There are Orthodox church leaders in Romania who persecute the Protestant churches because they think this is not God's way of worship. And that is zeal, but it is misguided zeal. This could include extremes like cult leaders like David Koresh, who said he was the Messiah. And he really believed that. I, I've come to the conclusion that I am the Messiah. And, and people believed it with him. And this was zeal, but it was misguided and actually fatal zeal. This could include legalistic Christians who angrily turn faith into a rule book. And then they walk around uh, beating everybody with the Bible and, and policing them to conform to a works-based system of righteousness. And this is religious zeal, but it is spiritually misguided. And we can go on and on with many different examples, but in our own church, people can be zealously going through the motions, but if they think that that's what's making them right with God, then their zeal is misguided. Pray that the lost would be saved and make sure you know that religious zeal is misguided. People need to be saved from this. Now he goes on to say this. My prayer for them is that they may be saved for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking, listen, seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. So their effort was to establish their own plan, not God. So jot this down. Religious effort is misguided. Religious zeal is misguided. Religious effort is misguided. This would include attending ceremonies, religious ceremonies, celebrating holidays, being a part of religious festivals, fasting and prayer, uh, and none of it saves us. None of it saves us. All of this is an attempt to establish your own righteousness in God's sight. Now, how can, when you see pictures of millions of people attending uh, Hindu worship festivals or, or Muslim gatherings around the world, you say, well, how can so many people uh, have religious effort that is misguided? Well, it says here, Paul says, um, that I bear them witness they have zeal, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteous of, righteousness of God. So the idea here is, if their knowledge of God, who he is, and their knowledge of God, how we are to approach him, is incorrect then their efforts are going to be misguided. Uh, we live in a day where it's, it's uh, popular and fashionable to say, well, you know, all religions basically teach the same thing. How many of you have heard people say that? Well, all religions basically teach the same thing. Uh, that's absolutely false. If you look at uh, the nature of God, the plan of salvation, the problem of man, um, sin, how it's solved, uh, all major religions disagree um, about major areas of doctrine. Um, for example, in the Buddhist faith, they teach us that the reality that you are living in today is actually an illusion. There, there is no such thing. And the way to get out of suffering and desire is to wake up to the reality that you don't even exist. Okay, now that's very different from what I believe. I believe the world has been created. I believe there is a God. I believe it was made for a purpose and I was made to know this God. Uh, I don't believe in, in an impersonal, fatalistic, 
absence of reality. Okay, so you can't just say, well, we all basically believe the same thing. That's not true. Um, is the, in the Muslim faith, we all share a common ancestor in Abraham. So uh, Islam, um, also with Judaism and Christianity, there's a lot of things that we would share the same views on in terms of ethics, in terms of morality, and even in terms of some of the basic nature of God and creation. Um, but one great place where we split is uh, no Muslim believes that Jesus died on the cross. None of them. Zero percent of Muslims believe that Jesus died on the cross. It is foundational to their faith that that never happened because God would not let that happen to a prophet. Also, 0% of Muslims believe that Jesus is God's son. Uh, the most widely recited verse in the Quran says, God is not a father, he has no son. Okay, so to say, well, they all believe the same thing. Well, I believe that God the Father has one son, Jesus Christ. Is that what you believe? No. Then we believe different things. We believe very different things. And they can't both be true. You can't say that Jesus did die on the cross, and he didn't. That leaves reason behind. Uh, so we have to pick one. We have to decide which of these truth claims is most verifiable and lines up with how God has revealed himself in time. And then we have to look back and say, well, then if that's the truth, how are we to uh, worship God? And that's where religious effort can be misguided. Um, it says in Matthew 7, 13 to 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. There are many who are on the wide road that leads to destruction religiously, and their effort is misguided. Paul says, I know that they're, they're religious, I know, but they're trying to establish their own thing, and that's not God's plan. Pray that the lost would be saved, knowing that their religious zeal is misguided, their religious effort is misguided. And then jot this down. Faith is actually the path to righteousness. Faith. It says here in verse 3, seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Well, what is that? Verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Or that could be read, the end of the law, that everyone who believes may be justified. So Christ the Messiah, Jesus, is the end of the law. The, the end of the uh, road of effort is Jesus Christ. And therefore, we believe that we are not saved by works, but we are saved by faith in the one who worked on our behalf. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. And the truth is, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. Christianity is not a series of steps a series of efforts that build up our merit with God. Christianity is a walking away from the attempt to earn our way to God and a clinging to something at the cross that was done on our behalf. It's a clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is not just personal. Faith is a person. And faith is the path to righteousness. What does righteousness mean? Righteousness means being right in God's sight. So we'll all appear before the judgment seat sooner than we think and our lives will be evaluated. And if we are righteous, then that means we're acceptable in God's sight. We have met the measure of his standard. Um, and when it comes to his standard, his stand standard is perfection. He can't allow any sin into heaven or heaven won't be sin. Or, or uh, heaven won't be heaven if there's sin in it. And so how can he get all of the sin out of us? Well, he has to do it by giving us a righteousness that is perfect. Well, where can you find such a thing? It's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so important that you realize this. Christianity is not a try-harder religion. 
Christianity is not a do-your-best faith. Uh, Christianity is a relationship. Jesus did it all, and he did it for me. That's faith. One way that I described this earlier in this series is when the Bible grades our moral effort, we all get an F. We all get an F. Uh, you might think that you get a better F than other people, but it's still an F. We were reading a parenting book by Paul Tripp. Have you guys read Paul Tripp before? Who knows Paul Tripp? He's a great author. You should read his books. But he's got kids, and surprisingly, his kids are sinful too. It makes you feel real good when he shares stories about his kids challenge him. But anyway, he said his daughter came home from school one day and announced proudly, I got the highest D in the class. Dad, I got the highest D in the class. And he's like, where do I start with that? Because <laughs> she's so happy, you know? No one got a higher D than me. Uh, when, when you think you're going to appear before God in your own righteousness, it's like saying, God, I got the highest F in the bunch. It's, it's not, you failed to, to fulfill God's standards for righteousness. And uh, God's standards are not unfair. They're actually perfectly just. And therefore, we get an F. Now, Jesus came into the world. <clears throat> he lived the perfect life. He never sinned once. He got an A. Now, here's how salvation works. Jesus comes along, sees your F. And he erases your name, and he writes his name on your paper. He takes your F. Now, he appears before God, and he gets an A. And he writes your name on his paper. You get his A, he gets your F. That's how salvation works. That's what the cross is all about. He took your failure, and then he appeared before God, and he gave you his victory. That's salvation. Faith is the path to righteousness. So pray that the lost would be saved. And he's very careful. Religious zeal is misguided. Religious effort is misguided. Faith is the path to righteousness. That's the path he wants them on. And that's the path we would want our lost loved ones on. Faith. Now he goes on to say this. Verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. Uh, he's quoting the Old Testament here, so jot this down. We have to abandon works-based religion. We have to abandon works-based religion. First, he summarizes what we learned uh, in the Old Testament. He said, well, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. So the law, the Ten Commandments, Moses came down Sinai, which was on fire, and, and gave us God's law. There is a moral law giver, and there is a moral law. And Moses testifies to that. Moses came down with the law. That represents the Old Testament. And what did Moses say? The person who does the commandments shall live by them. And that's what the righteousness of law says. Do them and live. And when you know God's word, when you know the rules, when you're raised in the Bible, if, you know, a lot of the things you learn you will do. But no one can do them perfectly. And when you follow God's word, things go better. And when you break God's law, things tend to go worse. Israel was back and forth with God, back and forth with God. They obeyed and they didn't. They obeyed and they didn't. Finally, God kicked them out of the promised land, as he said, because no one can keep the law. Therefore, Paul reminds us earlier in the book of Romans, the law was never the path to God forever. It was a warning showing us we couldn't forever enjoy God's presence. And it was a warning that meant to get us ready for something greater. 
Uh, jot this down. God's law convicts us. God's law is meant to convict us. We're drawing these truths from what we've learned in the book of Romans already. But God's law convicts us that we have broken his commands. It says, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. Where do you get your right and wrong? Where do you get your notions of, of what? Well, there's a law. There's a moral law. And that's what tells us what's right and what's wrong. It says that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And then he starts quoting, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not, so then he starts quoting these Old Testament verses. But starting out, you need to understand that there is a God and he has a law and we are all accountable to God's moral law. Now, I found out that in um, all SIP, there is a law governing traffic violations because I got in the mail last week a red light camera violation. Yeah, I was driving and it was all my fault. $100 because I didn't come to a complete stop before I made a right turn. It was late at night, I wanted to get home, and I rolled through the light. It was my first red light ticket ever. We should have a contest right now to see who's gotten the most red light camera tickets and we'll give you an extra cookie. Hands are going up, me! I did it! If you've gotten one of these, you know there is a law. And, and then suddenly, bam, you get this piece of mail and you're like, oh, well then, and they give you the section and the code and if you want to appeal it, and you're like, blah, blah, blah. But you can't contest it because they send you the video. Pull it up online and you're watching and you're like watching and you're like, oh, I didn't stop. <laughs> I imagine what judgment is going to be like when we're in heaven and, and the angels, you know, you're on judgment and then you're like, I don't remember this sin. And then the angels are like, all right, pull up camera two. And there you are <laughs> on another angle. Zoom in. We good with that one? Okay, let's move on to... 3,294,565th offense. It's not going to take long to condemn us, okay? Not, not take long at all. Can you even imagine if God sent us in the mail every single infraction, every single week? We wouldn't even have opened the mail from last week. We'd all be at home like, oh, no, I'm in big trouble. There is a moral law, and God uses it to convict us of sin, and it's, it's meant to show us that we are not right with God. Not right with God. Sometimes people think, well, I haven't broken any of the big ones. But that's not how God's law works. John Stott said this, breaking God's law is like breaking a pane of glass. You strike it at one point, but the entire sheet shatters. You can't break God's law a little. It's very true. The nature of sin is all the same. Even the smallest sin rules you out from heaven because you'll ruin it. You're ruined. Sin is a substance that is uh, fatal in its most basic, smallest form. Uh, you know, if I told you, hey, I make cupcakes, there's only one shard of glass in there, but enjoy. Okay, it's not the amount. It's the nature of the substance that's in there that is fatal. And so if you're like, well, I only have one shard of glass in my soul, it doesn't matter. It, you've got to be rejected. So the nature of sin is something that we have to come to reality with. Now, when it comes to the law, 
Paul quotes Leviticus 18 and Ezekiel 20, 13. Do we have Leviticus 18, 5? I think we're going to put it on the screen. There we go. He quotes this. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And God was faithful to his promises. When they kept his law, God blessed them. And when they broke his law, then he judged them. Now, Ezekiel 20, 13 says this. Um, but the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I said, I will pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. This, is, this was a conditional covenant with Moses. You keep it, I bless you. You break it, I judge you. And in the end, they were all cursed and driven out of the land. That was meant to show us that God means it, that judgment is coming on us, but it was also meant to show us that this is not the way for us to be saved. Uh, jot this down. Religion cannot save us. Religion cannot save us. Um, they had excuses when they were given the law, and they didn't keep it. So when, when he goes on here to say, but the righteousness based on faith says, what he does is he starts changing what was written in the Old Testament and applying it to the righteousness of faith. Uh, but the point is, they couldn't be saved by the religion of law. Faith had to come along. The law was never meant to permanently deliver God's people. When you try and fix your own sin problem using religion, you're going to fail. Here's a picture of a guy trying to fix a plane. Check this out. And he's got a roll of duct tape out there. You see that? Now, I don't know about you, but if I see that, I'm getting off that plane. Because he's trying to fix a jet problem, and he's using duct tape. I watched MacGyver. I still don't trust this guy. MacGyver could fix anything with duct tape and zip ties. This guy doesn't look like MacGyver. This, this is the equivalent of you trying to fix your own sin problem with religion. You can't duct tape that. God, only God can fix it. And according to the Old Testament here, where, uh, what the Israelites originally said, um, uh, Moses was anticipating their complaint. And he said, well, don't say who will ascend to heaven. Right? Don't say... Who will descend into the abyss? And then he went on to say, the law is with you and it's in your heart. The point is, now that you know the law, you're liable to keep it. But they couldn't. So what Paul did was, he quotes this verse, but instead of putting the law of Moses in there, he puts faith. Now he applies it to us. He says, don't, now, now that you know about Jesus, don't say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. He's already come down. Or who will descend into the abyss? Well, Christ already came up from there. What does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So he's using that now to say there's no excuse now. And jot this down. Jesus came to save us. Jesus came to save us. He's saying there's no excuse. There was no excuse to obey the law then, but they couldn't. And he's saying, look, the, the word of faith now is... Don't say, well, this is just so impossible. I mean, I can't even know. He's all the way up in heaven. Who can go down to the depths to fix our death problem? Jesus did it. He's saying Jesus did it. The excuses don't last. The word of faith is a call to faith. It's important to understand when we pray for the lost to be saved, a lot of people are people of faith. Faith has to be focused on Jesus Christ. It can't be faith in any old thing. It can't be faith in nothing. It has to be faith in Jesus. Anne Lamott um, is very, uh, in her view on God, I think shows how many people treat God today. In her book on prayer, she says this, 
nothing could matter less than what we call this force. Let's not get bogged down on whom or what we pray to. Let's just say prayer is communication from our hearts to the great mystery or goodness, to the animating energy of love we are sometimes bold enough to believe in. We could call this force not me, or for convenience, we could just say God. Now this is such a misguided non-definition of God. It's make up whatever you want, and if you want to, call it God. That faith can't save. That's faith in nothing. That's faith in, in, in nothing, coherent. And this kind of faith today that has no content, no definition, we won't even put words to who God is, that can't save. Only faith in the Lord Jesus Christ can save. Number three, you can jot this down. Confess Jesus as your risen Lord. Number one, pray that the lost would be saved. Number two, abandon works-based righteousness or religion. Number three, this is where we're landed. Confess Jesus as your risen Lord. In verse nine, he goes on to say this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Here it is. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Wow. If you confess Jesus as your risen Lord, you will be saved. This answers the question, who can be saved and how can we be saved? Now, the idea that we have to be saved is fundamental to our understanding of how we relate to God. We don't need to be taught. We don't need to be comforted primarily. Uh, we, we, we need to be saved, rescued, pulled from the burning car, out. Uh, we need God to reach down to the very depths of the sea and bring us up onto dry land. He has to save us. And how does that happen? Well, we confess Jesus as our risen Lord. Here's a picture of the cross. And at the cross, what happened? What happened there is Jesus gave up his life, and he did that so that we can be saved. And one of those men to his uh, right uh, said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, that man on the cross, that thief on the cross, could do nothing bad or good anymore. All he did was issue a cry of faith. Lord, remember me. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And that's your cry. Your cry is, Jesus, remember me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, rescue me. That's how we get saved. Have you confessed Jesus as your risen Lord? Jot this down. You will be saved. You will be saved. I don't know your story. Do you have a story when you were saved? This is called conversion. This is called being born again. Nobody was born a Christian. Maybe you were born around Christians, but you were not born a Christian. You might say, well, I always knew about Jesus, but you can't say I always knew Jesus. There has to be a point in time where you invite Christ into your life as Savior and Lord. Your parents can't do that for you. When I was born, I was baptized as a child in the, uh, in the Catholic Church, and then I really, God didn't get a hold of me until I was a freshman in college, and I was reading through my Bible, came across the passages in the book of Acts where, where grown people were being baptized, and I was like, that's weird, grown-ups get baptized? And then I realized, wow, this is the way the Bible says it has to happen. 
once you have faith in Christ, then you get baptized to show everybody that you've been saved. So I did it again. I, I got baptized, and I, I, had, I was in a heavy metal band. I had long hair, you know, and they put me in this choir robe, which was a little embarrassing. Um, but, but I did. I got baptized. And look, that showed the world that I was saved, that I was saved. Um, and hey, have you been baptized? Maybe it's time for you to tell your story. Maybe it's time for you to make the decision to get baptized and to say, I want the church and the world to know that Jesus saved me. That's what baptism is all about. Confess Jesus as your risen Lord. Baptism is the way to do that. You will be saved. Jot this down. You will be justified. Justified. It says here, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified. Justified. The word justified means to be made right in God's court of law. Once you are justified, now listen, this is an unbelievable spiritual concept. Once you are justified, here's the way to remember it. When God looks at you, he sees you uh, just as if I'd never sinned. Just as justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Now, I, I have sinned a lot. I have a sister who would gladly tell you all of my transgressions, all of them. And for God to say, hey, when I look at you, you know what I see? I see just as if you've never sinned once. That's impossible. How could God say that about me? It's because when he looks at me, he sees Christ in me. That's why. Jesus is photobombing my sin, standing right in front of the picture so that God can't even see them anymore. And that's an amazing thought. You will be justified. Jot this down, no matter what you've done. Confess Jesus as your risen Lord. You'll be saved. You'll be justified no matter what you've done. He says here, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Again, quoting the Old Testament. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We learn about Jesus here. Jesus is Lord of all. Every person is accountable to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, no matter where they live or how they were raised. He is Lord of all. And he is willing to receive anyone and everyone who comes to him for salvation. In 1 Timothy 1, 15-16, Paul describes his own heart. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, or the worst, or the chief. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. If you said, will the worst sinner in the room please raise their hand, Paul, my hands up, me, I win, that's Paul's heart, major league sinner. And that's meant to show you that if you deal with guilt or shame, if you deal with feeling like God would never accept you, you're wrong. You're wrong. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hey, listen, folks, you need to understand the radical nature of the grace of our God. You need to understand, so you're not shocked when you get there, 
just who is going to be in heaven with you. The worst of sinners. The worst of sinners. Folks, I mean the worst. Con artists, thieves, drug dealers, abusers, rapists, murderers, sex traffickers, prostitutes, ruthless dictators, serial killers, child molesters, cartel assassins, cannibals, kidnappers, terrorists, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That includes you. You are not beyond the grace of God. The worst of sinners in this room is welcome home through the grace of God. And if you think you're going to walk into heaven and say, get that guy out of here, there are going to be the very blackest bottom of humanity as children of God for eternity. And that should give you peace because that's how you get there. The vilest offender who truly believes can be welcome home as a child of God. This is the grace we proclaim, brothers and sisters. This is the grace our sinful, dark world desperately needs to hear. Are you praying for the lost? Are you a saved sinner standing not on your own unrighteousness but on the work of Christ? This is the message that changes the world. This is the heart of God. And I want to give you a chance to respond to this amazing grace that is offered to you. Let's close our eyes and let's pray. Father, the grace that you offer us is unbelievable. Jesus, you didn't say some. You said all. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I, I think today in particular of some who maybe came here feeling like they were the worst of sinners, that if people only knew what they have done or said or thought or felt, that they would be rejected by all. And maybe that's true. Maybe if the full work of their life was an open book and leaked online, all in the world would turn on them. But if they repented and turned to you, you would receive them as a child of God. Thank you, Jesus, for this unbelievable grace that at our worst, you would receive us. The truth is, the same ugly energy of sin courses through all of our veins. It may have found different expressions in each one of us, but we are no different than the person sitting next to us. This book we read from today was written by a murderer. Thank you, Jesus, that you are willing to save us, sinners like us. We stand not on our own righteousness, but on your rescue mission. And Lord, perhaps there are some here this morning who want to finally say, Jesus, save me. Just like the thief on the cross. Jesus, save me. Save me. It's in his name we pray.